So it is that time, and let's take your Bible and turn to uh, the end of the Old Testament book of First Kings, uh, specifically First Kings chapter 22, verses 1 to 28. If you want to use one of the Bibles that are in the uh, chair racks, then you can go directly there. It's on page 386. Do I have that right, or do I have that wrong? 386. Yes, 386. Um, this winter, we're doing a survey of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, uh, it's actually a fitting uh, application or uh, series to be in as we ordain a new ruling elder. We're talking about leadership and what good leaders and bad leaders uh, look like. And so it's very uh, appropriate. It can be, particularly when you're doing a quick survey, it can be a little bit uh, confusing with all the kings in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom uh, and all that, which is why, if you noticed in your bulletin this week, I included a little um, cheat sheet, uh, two sides, one with the uh, the kings of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, one with the kings of Judah, the, the southern kingdom. Um, stick that in your Bible. might be helpful as we kind of go through this to just kind of keep, uh, keep track. It does a pretty good job, I think, of summarizing the chronologies. And this morning, uh, we're actually looking at an account that intersects the timelines, front side and back side of that uh, sheet, uh, because we have uh, King Jehoshaphat, uh, who was one of the good kings of Judah in the south, intersecting with King Ahab, uh, who is one of the notoriously evil kings of Israel in the north. And they're both in the same place at the same time uh, in 1 Kings 22. So I know we're kind of parachuting in here, and there's, there's more to say about the context. We'll do that, but let's just, let's just jump in. Let's just parachute in. We'll read verses 1 to 28, and then once we're on the ground, uh, we'll spend a little bit more time maybe trying to describe the landscape uh, when we get to the ground. But um, because it's a bit of a long passage, I'm going to encourage you to stay seated as I read it, but it is God's word, so I want you to pay all appropriate attention to it. Um, and then when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. So 1 Kings chapter 22, I'm going to start at verse 1, read through verse 28. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel and the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to, to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imiah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. And the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, made for himself horns of iron and said, thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. 
Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered to him, answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, this is Micaiah, he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Chanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah, take him back to Amnon, the governor of the city and Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return to me in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, one of the classic case studies in uh, business culture, organizational culture, is Bridgewater Associates. Uh, Bridgewater Associates is the largest hedge fund in the, uh, in the world, manages about $125 billion uh, in its portfolio. Currently, it rises, it falls, obviously. And I haven't kept up over the last couple of years, but at least historically, Everyone at Bridgewater Associates is encouraged, actually required, to speak freely and publicly about the ideas and the performance of everyone else in the organization. From the most junior associate all the way up to the now retired chairman, chief investment officer, founder, Ray Dalio. Uh, they actually had an app, maybe they still have it, but they actually had an app where they used to track the ideas that people had and then everyone would chime in on the app and rate the ideas rank the ideas, comment on the ideas. And Ray Dalio, um, I once heard him comment on a time when someone who, uh, who worked with him, a guy named Jim, sent Dalio a message on this app. He said, Ray, you deserve a D minus for your performance today. This is the founder of the, of the organization, right? Ray, you deserve a D minus for your performance today at the meeting. You didn't prepare well because there's no way you could have been that disorganized. That's what he said. And not only does Ray see this, but everyone gets to see this. And Ray's reaction to this, you know what his reaction was? Isn't that great? So I need to get feedback like that. Now, it would take a Harvard Business Review kind of level study and discussion to evaluate the practicality of sort of universally applying uh, something like that, to that radical transparency into every organization. I'm a little bit skeptical in the world in which we live that that would actually work well in every situation. But for our purposes, and given what we just read in 1 Kings 22, there's something fascinating about that, isn't there? about a leader who is willing to invite people to speak truth to him 
regardless of how it might make him feel. Because that does not sound like King Ahab and his advisors in 1 Kings 22, does it? Ahab says he wants the truth, but he really doesn't want the truth. And so he rejects the truth when he actually hears the truth. The only problem, with, though, is, is that truth is truth regardless of whether you think it's true or not. It's still true. And trying to escape it doesn't make it untrue. Did you get all that? Did you follow that? Right? He wants the truth, he rejects the truth, but the truth is still truth. That's the idea. And I think we're actually the same way. Right? So those are the three headings. We want the truth, we reject the truth, but truth is still truth. Let's look at it. Let's look at each of those. We want the truth. Go back to 1 Kings 22. Right? And I told you, we sort of jumped out of the plane. Right? This is where we landed. We landed in the countryside about 850 BC. This is where we are. And let's just sort of survey the hedgerow where we, where we are, where we've landed. We, Ahab is the king of Israel. That's the northern kingdom, the collection of northern tribes with its capital in Samaria. And it's been about three years since there had been an all-out war between Ahab and the Syrians and their leader, uh, uh, Ben-Hadad. Syria in the Bible is known as Aram, and, and, and they had taken a sizable portion of Israel's territory from Ahab's father. That's why war broke out, right? Syria, the Syrians had come in, they had taken a, a sizable portion of Israel's territory from Omri, who was Ahab's father, but Ahab had gone to war and had defeated Ben-Hadad, and the Lord's instruct, instruction was that Ben-Hadad was to be put to death in judgment because of his war against God's people. That was the instruction. Now, Ahab thought he knew better than God. This was a common theme in, the, in, in Ahab. And he struck a deal. He made an alliance with Ben-Hadad. He said, I'm going to let you live, and in return, you're going to be my ally. We're going to be friends. We're going to be allies. And you're going to return all the cities of the, uh, uh, that, you, that you had taken. Right? All, the, all the cities in the kingdom that you had taken from Israel, you return those, I let you live, and we'll kind of be friends. That's, that's the deal that he struck. Now, one of those cities was Ramoth-Gilead. But you see, Ramoth-Gilead was probably located in some strategically important area, trade route or something like that. And so the king of Aram, having now been spared and safely back in his own land, he's sort of dragging his feet to return the city. And Ahab is miffed. He's tired of this. And so he picks up the red phone on his desk and he calls Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now, lots have happened, but we're still only about 100 years or so from Solomon in the United Kingdom of Israel. And so despite their significant differences and the, the rivalries and the real animosity between the northern and the southern kingdom, there's probably no more natural place for Ahab to go, the king of Israel, than to turn to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And so Ahab says, hey, Jehosh, look, uh, it's Ahab calling here. Uh, can you help me out? The king of Aram, he's got one of my cities, and I'm going to go take it back, but I could use your support. And Jehoshaphat apparently said yes. In verse 2, he goes down to see Ahab, and Ahab asks Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to retake Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, which is just a very fancy kingly way of saying, yeah, I'm with you, bro. Let's go. Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king. Right? But he wasn't a perfect king. And I think later you can do analysis on the back end of this and look back and say, maybe this alliance wasn't all that great of an idea. But I think there is, at the very least, something that's at least a little bit admirable in Jehoshaphat's loyalty to the wayward nation of Israel, to, to King Ahab. Again, we're really, we're really only about 100 years from Solomon at this point. And, and maybe Jehoshaphat sees this as an opportunity to bring them back into the, to the fold, to influence Ahab a little bit, to point him back to the to the truth of God. Because after Jehoshaphat's statement of commitment to Ahab, I'm with you, bro, in verse 4, it says in verse 5, but Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, first, though, let's seek the counsel of the Lord. 
Before we go into battle, why don't we ask God for his input here? And interestingly, you don't see Ahab protest. Now, maybe he's just being polite. But there's probably some sincere desire to seek some supernatural blessing on what he's uh, about to do. So Ahab calls for his prophets. And he gets about 400 of them together. These are his, uh, his, his yes men. And he says, should I go to war against Ramoth Gilead? And they all tell him what they know he wants to hear. Go, for the Lord has given them into your hand. Right, now, first of all, these guys aren't real prophets, so they don't really know. But if you're going to make something up to tell to a ruthless tyrant king, are you going to make up something good or are you going to make up something bad? Especially when you know the answer that he wants to hear. Right? This isn't Bridgewater uh, uh, Associates here. Nobody wants to give Ahab a D-. You don't want to do that. But then Jehoshaphat, you've got to love it, he says, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we can inquire of? In other words, got any real prophets around that maybe we could ask? Now I have, if you go back and look at the last few chapters before chapter 22, he isn't exactly on speaking terms with the real prophets. But he does say, verse 8, yeah, there's this one guy, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never tells me what I want to hear. Right? But Jehoshaphat, he scolds him, and so Ahab does. He summons Micaiah. Now again, we have, we have Ahab being a somewhat reluctant seeker of the the truth but he's willingly he's willingly nonetheless inviting a true prophet of God into his presence here's the interesting thing though Micaiah's first response to Ahab in verse 15 is to sarcastically say the same thing that all the other prophets had told him right Ahab asks, should I go and Micaiah essentially says sure go ahead knock yourself out right attack be victorious go ahead and Ahab he seems to know that the answer that he's getting from Micaiah isn't the truth Look at verse 16. How many times shall I make you swear to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Right? He's at least on the outside kind of saying like, I want you to, to stop. Stop the game. Tell me what you really think. At least at some level, Ahab knows truth from untruth and he wants to know the truth. At least that's what he says. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to see ourselves a little bit at least in Ahab's place at this point. Because like Ahab, I think we all want the truth sort of. Right? That's how I would classify Ahab. He wants the truth, sort of. And that's how we are. Right? Think about yourself. On the one hand, when it comes to the truth, we want to know it. Particularly if there's something wrong that we need to change. Part of, we, want, we want it. If we have a medical condition that's ne- negatively impacting us or whatever, do you want to know the truth or not? Well, you probably do. Sort of. Because the truth is good, but on the other hand, the truth is threatening sometimes. Threaten our pride threaten our identity, particularly if there's something that we've been doing wrong, something we need to change, something that needs to change that we don't want to change, right? And change, any change can be uncertain, it can be scary. So we want the truth, sort of. Now those are smaller matters, relatively speaking, as important as they are, diet, health, those kinds of things. When it comes to the bigger question of life, the truth of the universe, why we exist, why do we hurt, where's my hope, right? In those those questions, I think the same thing holds as well. Deep down, we want answers, at least deep down. Our heart seeks to know the greater meaning of the world in which we live, our significance, to know the correct diagnosis of what's gone wrong with the world and what makes it right again. We want to know where we came from, what makes our lives matter, right? We want to know how to function in life's uncertainty. We want the, we want the truth, and yet our seeking for the truth and our finding of the truth runs into a problem because we're not instinctively like Jehoshaphat in this story, suggesting that we seek truth from God, we're more, practically speaking, a lot of the time, more like Ahab. And the reason is that while we want the truth, 
We fear the truth at the same time. We fear it because like Ahab, the truth often threatens our sovereignty. Now Ahab's sovereignty that was threatened, someone comes and tells him that you know, he's not being a good king, it threatens his sovereignty as a, you know, as a king. The sovereignty it threatens in us when the truth confronts us is our sovereignty. Our, our assumption, our implicit assumption that we get to rule our own lives. It's very threatening, the truth. Because if there's anything that stands above us, it means that we're not ultimately the ones who, one who calls the shots. And ultimately, we need to bow to that greater something. So we want the truth, but only sort of. And that's because point number two, ultimately, in our sinful state, we reject the truth. Now, thankfully, Micaiah, when he's now pushed towards it in his sarcasm kind of exposed, Micaiah shoots straight and he tells Ahab, okay, this is what I see. Here's what I see. This is verse 17. I see the people of Israel on a hillside with no shepherd, no one to lead them. In other words, because you're not there. And you know why you're not there? Because you're dead. It's not going to go very well for you if you do this. And Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, you see why I hate this guy? This is why. He's always telling me stuff like this. And then Micaiah goes on. He says that all the other prophets are liars, all 400 of them. They're deceiving Ahab by telling him only the things that he wants to hear. Right? But here's the thing. Ahab, ultimately, he doesn't care. He rejects what Micaiah says. He says he wanted the truth from Micaiah. Give me the truth. Give it to me straight. And then what's he do? He throws Micaiah in jail and he chooses to attack Ramoth Gilead anyway. Why? Why does Ahab reject God's truth? Didn't Ahab say, didn't he say he wanted the truth? Well, yeah, but only sort of. He wanted it when it conformed with his will. When the truth matched his view of truth, he wanted it. And when, he doesn't, and when it doesn't, then he rejects it. And aren't we the same way? Right? The truth of God is ultimately that he is sovereign and we are not. We are not our own rulers. We are created beings. We are dependent and subject to him. And that's not a bad thing. We're created with dignity. We're made in the image of God. We're intended to, to work with purpose, work with meaning, to, to experience true and lasting pleasure and joy. But see, we get none of those things when we make ourselves the false kings of our lives, when we make ourselves the sovereign, because only God is the true sovereign. And that's what's at the center of our sin, an assumption that we get to define for ourselves our own meaning, our own truth, and we get to seek what we want to seek rather than the one who creates truth in the first place. It's the sin of Adam and Eve in the very beginning. It's the same sin as Ahab. I've heard the truth, but I'm going to reject it because I believe that I am more properly equipped to decide right and wrong, truth and falsehood for myself. Right? So you see where we are. Point number one, right? we want the truth, sort of. Point number two, we reject the truth. But for all the arrogant bravado, the uncomfortable fact for Ahab and for us, Point number three is that even if we reject the truth, the truth is still the truth. Uh, many people, in fact, the majority of people, if you look at most survey results, claim to believe the truth is relative. In other words, people say truth isn't absolute. It depends on the, depends on the circumstances. All right, but it's helpful to remember that practically no one really behaves like truth is relative, not consistently, that you can decide for yourself however you want, uh, whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want it, right? Truth doesn't, truth doesn't work like that. Let me illustrate it like this. I think I've mentioned before that I grew up about a mile and a half uh, from the intersection where in 1985, uh, the 26-year-old goalie for the Philadelphia Flyers, Pelly Lindbergh, was killed in a tragic accident. Uh, now, you can go back. You can look up the sad uh, details some other, uh, other time. I was about 12 when it happened. But in summary... 
Uh, Lindbergh, having had too much to drink after a game one night, was at the Flyers training facility in Voorhees, New Jersey, which is where they uh, trained, and he crashed his very expensive sports car into a concrete retaining wall driving 80 miles an hour, and he died from the injuries that resulted. Now, I know the spot well because Somerdale Road is a, is a busy road that's traveled uh, frequently by everyone in the area. The problem is, is that, that right at that point, when you're traveling west on Somerdale Road, right where the accident occurred, the road bends sharply. And as long as you bend with it, you stay on the road. But if you don't, you drive straight into a wall. Pelly's car never turned. Now, I'm not trying to ridicule Pelly Lindbergh, but, but think about this for a minute. If I'm driving on the same road, which I've probably done hundreds of times, I can think with the greatest of sincerity that the road at that point goes straight. I can believe it with all my heart. I can declare it to be my truth. But sincerity doesn't matter. My personal preference might be to not turn my steering wheel when I get to that curve. But I had better turn it. Why? Because the truth is the truth. And the truth is, the road bends. So I can choose to ignore the truth. I can, because I'm under the influence of something that cripples my senses, be blind to the truth. But it doesn't change the truth. The truth is still the truth. And if I don't recognize that, I crash. Now, you say that might be true in the physical realm, but not in the moral realm. Their truth isn't really truth. Again, philosophers say things like that, but no one actually believes things like that. Pick your place on the ideological spectrum and tell me there's no such thing as truth. Right? Anywhere. You just ask questions to people and you kind of say, all right, all right, fine. Nothing's right or wrong. Is racism wrong? You think it's right or is it wrong? Is sexual harassment right or is it wrong? Absolutely. Sometimes or always. Is abuse by someone in a position of authority to someone weaker? Is that right or is that wrong? Sometimes or always. The murder of someone who's innocent. Is it right or is it wrong? Sometimes or always. Right? Now the point at the moment is not to debate any of the particular issue, but to observe that as soon as someone calls something wrong, as soon as some, 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 say, someone says something is true or another thing's false, you assume a standard, a measuring stick by which you make that judgment. Now our culture will tell you that we are, that we are our own measuring stick. And that's what Ahab assumed. Thanks for the insight, Micaiah. Appreciate that. I choose to believe that Somerdale Road stays straight at this intersection. But truth is the truth, and the truth is when you encounter the reality of God, you have to bend to the reality of God, or you crash, and Ahab crashes because he chose not to bend, because he was under the influence, intoxicated by his own power, blind to the wall that was right in front of him. You can finish the rest of the chapter later. Ahab chooses to go into battle despite the warning, and despite his best efforts, he's killed just like Micaiah predicted, and just like two other prophets before him had predicted. Now, what about us, as we conclude and wrap this up? What about us? Well, we crash too, if we don't listen to the prophet. One of the main themes of this section of the Bible, First and Second Kings, one of the main themes, perhaps the primary theme of the historical period of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, is that we need, the people of God desperately need, a better king, a greater king, an ultimate king, a perfect king who will lead them. A shepherd king who will call his sheep, who will care for his sheep, right? That's one of the major points. We'll re we return over and over again through this win winter. We'll return to that theme. We need a greater king. But this account doesn't just point us to an ultimate king. This account appoints us to an ultimate prophet and to an ultimate priest, right? Micaiah was willing, wasn't he, to accept the consequences of speaking truth to Ahab. And for him, it meant prison. But centuries later... Jesus stood before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in John 18 and he speaks to the man with the greatest human authority in the entire region 
And Jesus tells him that the reason he came into the world was to testify to what? To the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The primary discussion of the prophet Jesus as he comes before the authority figure of his day, the primary point of discussion that Jesus raises is the issue of truth. Now that's quite a claim. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying that anyone who does not listen to him is not on the side of truth. Micaiah, the prophet, was ridiculed. He was struck across the face. He was led to suffering. Why? Because he proclaimed the truth. And so, ultimately, finally, and sufficiently, was Jesus struck on the face and led to suffering because he proclaimed what was true. He was the prophet prophet who spoke boldly before power, and he was the priest whose suffering that followed provided for us the perfect sacrifice. Now, the application for us could be, okay, stand up for truth. I get it. I see what you're saying. When opposition comes, be willing to accept the sacrifice that comes with it. Stand up for truth. And that's a good takeaway, perhaps a very timely word for Christians in our age, stand up for truth, right? right? And you can place yourself into that position. I want to be Micaiah in this story. Good? Fine. Micaiah is worth emulating. But also, don't forget that there is a place for you to put yourself, while well, we, want to, we want to always be Micaiah. We want to be Jesus. I want to be that character in the story, speaking truth to power, accepting the consequences, standing strong. But let me encourage you again to consider yourself as playing the part of Ahab and Pilate. Because ultimately, in our sinful state, that's the role that we play in this story. Both of them at some level claimed to be seeking the truth, both of whom ultimately rejected the truth even though it was placed right in front of them. The truth is right in front of you. Every time we stand up and we talk and we open the word of God, the one who claimed to be truth, Jesus, is placed right in front of you. If we long for the truth, then we long for Jesus. And if you have never bowed before the prophet Jesus, the priest Jesus, the king Jesus, then today is that opportunity. Or, for many of you, let me rephrase it just a little bit differently. What area of your life are you struggling to submit to the truth of God? Ah, you may do it in your, you know, in your head, your conscious words might say it. But, but what area of your life is a struggle for you to submit to the truth of God? Something he says to do that you'd prefer not to do? Or something he says to believe that you might prefer to think differently about? Some decision you face, your own Ramoth Gilead kind of decision, where your first instinct is not to inquire of the Lord. I'm not minimizing the difficulty of any of those decisions, but in that, in that moment, as you stand in the throne room with the prophet speaking to you, I want you to see the character and the work of the prophet Jesus who speaks truth, right? Who is not leaving you in the throne room all by yourself. Micaiah the prophet stood in the throne room, the throne room of two kings, and he spoke truth to Ahab. He told them about what a world looked like, a kingdom looked like, without, with, with sheep who didn't have a shepherd. That's the vision that he gave them. Jesus stood before the Roman governor and he spoke truth to him. But even more than that, Jesus goes into the eternal throne room for us as our sacrificial lamb and as our eternal shepherd. We are not sheep without a shepherd. In the book of Revelation chapter 7 verse 17, the Bible describes the heavenly throne room. Not one of Ahab and Jehoshaphat, but a heavenly throne room. And it tells us that in that throne room we have a shepherd there. The shepherd is not absent. A shepherd that leads us to eternal satisfaction and joy. And that shepherd is our sacrificial lamb. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the prophet we serve. And that one speaks the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have given to us. Even when it is uncomfortable, Lord, it is for our 
good, and it is a discomfort that leads to our ultimate comfort, our ultimate satisfaction when we bend and when we yield to it. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do that, that we would bend to who you are and what you have done for your honor and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.